Hello there, listeners. This is Radio Free Bay Ridge, your all-volunteer, hyper-local, progressive podcast focusing exclusively on beautiful Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. I'm Eric, your education correspondent. And I'm Dan, your host. And happy first day of school, Eric. (laughs) Yes, we are recording, interestingly enough, the education episode on the first day of New York City Public Schools. The education episode. No, this is one of a series (laughs) that I think we're going to be doing this fall season. I've never been more excited. That's why I think today we're going to start with some foundational stuff. But before we get into that, it's the first day of school There's a lot of stuff that's been happening in the education sphere for the last couple of months over the summer break. So what was your summer reading? What did you do over summer vacation, Eric? Oh, goodness. Well, Dan, aside from aggressively trying to get through my master's program in education policy at NYU, little plug, there has been a lot of developments in education, particularly in New York City, that have been coming down the pike and... It's not being covered very well, if I could say so. (laughs) If I could just, uh, people can go to my Twitter feed if they want to see how I actually feel about how it's being covered. But for here in the podcast, I'll say it's not being covered very well. And there's a lot of nuance going on that is being missed. So let's start off with the most vitriolic one, which is the one that kind of popped up first through the summer. So that's the SHSAT. So I call it the SHISAT. There's no Y in there, but calling it SHISAT is an easier way to say than SHSAT. Okay. What exactly is it and why is this so controversial and what's changing about it? Yeah, so SHISAT is the Specialized High School Special Admissions Test. Basically what it does is a student takes the test. If they score a certain amount, they have the opportunity to perhaps attend a specialized high school. It's a little more complicated than that between the algorithm and school choice. A lot of things are being weighed, but basically what the test does, it allows students to have those specialized high schools as possibilities. And that's the only metric to get in. If you don't have the test, you can't get in. But once you have the test, there are certainly people who take that test and do not get in. Okay. So they take the test and even if they score high, it's still not a guarantee. This is a based on the number of seats available. Accurate. Like colleges, they have their admissions and then they also have their goals as an educational institution. Mm. Sometimes those goals will override admissions. So if they want more of X or more of Y, or they want to move in direction Z, they will perhaps move their admissions in that way. Now, public schools are a little more tightly regulated than a private college system, but it's certainly a factor. All right. So these are the admissions to get into things like Stuyvesant, um, Brooklyn Tech, Bronx Science. The big names. So why did they want to change this admissions test? So the change suggested, you know, writ large, is getting rid of it. That's where the controversy began. When people probably saw it on their Facebook feed, it was New York City's ready to get rid of this test. Ready, quote And we should say right off the bat, they're not getting rid of the specialized high schools. They're getting rid of the test to get into them. So how do you get into them? What would be the proposed alternative? There were a few floated around. And actually, it kind of split even among typically progressive and or democratic members of legislature and policymakers. Some of it was accepting a certain percentage of students in every school. Other proposals were kind of multi-metric. It was based on test scores, location. It had a lot of different factors behind it. And the mayor actually came out on one end of the thing. The speaker, aka... The current mayor. Current mayor, Tory Johnson, (laughs) came in on one end. And education chair, Mark Traeger, came out on a different end. Like, everyone is kind of in different spots Mm -hmm. on ShySat. 
but where the very small counted on one hand education activist community came out is thank God, let's get this test out of here. Why was this test creating problems? So like every aspect of gatekeeping in education, by and large, it systematically creates barriers for students. And more often than not, those barriers reinforce the already segregated school system that we have in New York City, Mm. which continues to be the most segregated school system in the United States. I saw a lot of this on my Facebook feeds and it was just like, oh, you know, we shouldn't get rid of this because we should be making all schools good. Right. That's a terrible argument. And I want our, <laughs> I want our listeners, if any of this gets cut, I want at least this part in. It is a terrible argument. Would that we could make all of our schools better and snap our fingers and it was so, right? If we could Thanos our schools, but instead <laughs> of getting rid of them, we just made them all Stuyvesant. Man, what a great world. It w- That's a terrible, terrible argument. And what are the metrics by which Stuyvesant is the be-all, end-all, or Bronx science or Brooklyn tech? What is the benefit of going to these schools? It's unclear, depending on everyone you ask. So the kind of idea that Stuyvesant, for example, is one of the best schools is currently true because we say so. And maybe it was a buildup of certain metrics that we agreed upon in the past, They could still be true, but currently it enjoys the position because we give it the position. Which is why we wanted to talk about school metrics and what actually makes a good school. Because if we want to talk about SciShat, we really should have a grounding in why do we want to get into these specialized high schools, which also feeds into the second thing that happened this summer, which was the gifted and talented program. Right. So basically what happened was the city commissioned a panel to look at issues of segregation and inequity in New York City public schools. They did so. They came out with recommendations. One of those recommendations was to eliminate the gifted and talented programs. Yet another thing that the progressive education activists in New York City said Yes, finally. Uh, (laughs) We've been talking about doing this for decades, and they're finally listening. Because we're one of the only ones that actually still does it this way. Uh, You know, whenever you're talking about tracking, which is basically when you take students in the same grade and put them on different curricular tracks. Some people know it as honors programs. Some people know it as gifted and talented. It happens across the country. It happened in my high school, and my high school was in the middle of nowhere. It's not necessarily we're the only ones doing it, but it is one of those things like the ShySat testing program that enforces the segregated nature of our school system. Some of the recommendations weren't necessarily to remove the programs themselves. It's this admissions track system within the school system that we call gifted and talented. Because I've seen a lot of blowback where people are like, how dare you not give gifted and talented students the things they need to excel. And it's like, no, we're limiting the uppercase gifted and talented program system that we test kids at four years old for admissions into gifted and talented kindergarten. Correct. On the bare bones of this, we need to not be testing four-year-olds. Maybe I'll get flack on Twitter for it. Frankly, bring it on. That's a hill I'm ready to die on. (laughs) Let's not test four-year-olds on their academic prowess. They finished potty training two, a year and a half ago. And, you know, we joke, but I also don't want to accept the premise of some of these arguments. We have a problem with that in the progressive side sometimes of where, you know, someone will come at us with, well, what about the gifted and talented people? And we immediately go to, ah, but this, and we, we kind of lean into that argument. 
we're not going to do that. And I would just beg my fellow progressives on Twitter, on Facebook, and in the real world to stop doing so. We're eliminating gifted and talented because a lot of smart people have sat down for the last at least 30 years and said, hey, if you really want students of color, poor students, and students who maybe aren't proficient in English, basically marginalized groups to continue to not do well in school, keep gifted and talented, keep tracking. If you would like to eliminate those things, their education will get better and the students who were in gifted and talented actually will not suffer at all. Our data always says it. There is a group called Teens Take Charge. It is a education advocacy group that is led almost exclusively by teenagers, you know, the people that education affects. And they are superb. They are top-notch on their policy expertise. And they actually, when they talked about gifted and talented, they identified parts of the report that don't go far enough. <laughs> so please follow them on Twitter. I don't know if they have a donate page, but if they do, give them money. They're excellent. I also want to point our listeners to another podcast, Miseducation. It is run by two students who I believe are in the Bronx. They were the first ones in, maybe not the first ones in New York City, but they were one of the first media outlets that I ran into that was talking about the inequities of school athletics in New York City, particularly in lower income communities. They talked about school segregation. If anyone wants a primer on how our education system in New York City is consistently and systematically against poor and students of color, they are the people to listen to. They are excellent. Please, I know they don't have a donate page, but if you have a student who's interested, they love interns, they love other students, they're entirely student-led, and I wanted to shout them out right at the top. Seriously, if we're going to be here, this is a podcast, you can pause and go check things out. (laughs) So let's start with the meat and potatoes for this, which is what was the narrative of education and why do we need to be talking about school statistics and metrics? Absolutely. So let's go back a bit and we're going to talk about something that we may have forgotten by now, which was the blue wave. Oh, yes. So let's everyone cheer. Hold for applause. It crashed over Shore Road in 2018, and Bay Ridge is in the throes currently of enjoying its new representation. And just one of the many results that that wave produced is that new schools that were promised are now being planned. The old Angel Guardian site, the Nathan site on 68th Street, they've already been presented to the public. And just announced a few months ago now, we heard about a middle school coming up right outside the 77th Street subway stop. So that sounds great. We are getting new schools. We're done, right? The schools were overcrowded. We're going to get three new schools. Problem solved. Yeah, that's not even remotely true. All right. So crowding will go down. Then we get more funding. Funding was the other part, right? Funding and more schools. Then everything's fine, right? I still no. But you know what, Dan? If I didn't know better, I'd say you were maybe reading from the policy pages of almost every politician leading up to the 2018 election cycle. In fact, here are some direct quotes from the Democratic campaign pages. Our new congressman, Max Rose, in his education platform called for more vocational education, lower student debt interest, eliminating the admissions test for specialized high schools, SHISAT, and better teacher funding. More funding. Yep. Our new state senator, Andrew Gernardis Page, asked to reform specialized high school admissions, more funding, called for alleviating overcrowding by opening a new high school. Our state assembly member, Frontis, also asked for, again, more funding, more funding, as well as an increase in mental health services, a request that would require more, more funding. More funding, exactly right. Adam Baumel, who ran against Nicole Maliotakis last year, called for teacher autonomy, eliminating high stakes testing, and passing the DREAM Act. 
So in most candidate platforms, funding is the main thrust of the argument, followed by a New York City special topic like Shysat or if that's too controversial, just general testing. Mm-hmm. And in 2018, Gennaris was the only person to mention our district's overcrowding problem. Which you would think would be an easy one to mention. Easy but, sell. It was Brandon's big old thing. At least the Democrats are talking about this. Like, where are the Republicans, right? So that's actually very interesting. Unlike in many other policies like housing or the environment, uh, the opponents for each of these Democrats did not differ very much from them on the topic of education. Really? Yeah, so... Come on, Donovan. Donovan must have, like, just at least done a slightly worse job. You would think. And, you know, that's on brand. But Donovan actually asked for better school funding, uh, more apprenticeships, which is almost a mirror to Max Rose's school funding and vocational programs position. All right, so Marty Golden, come on. Called for a new high school in the district, as well as funding increases for schooling, which mirrored Gennardis' exact call for a new school and more funding. They also both came down on the same side of the Shysat debate. All right, Frontus. Steve Saperstein, who ran against Mathilde, asked for more funding and job apprenticeships. Nicole Maliotakis, come on, please. So so she's the outlier, right? So in 2018, she had zero issues pages on her website. Still does, by the way. That continues into her Max Rose campaign, indeed. No mention of policy, only news reposts of her campaign events. And this is actually pretty similar to how she's, again, running her current bid for New York 11. Yeah. But I digress. If we look back on her run for mayor, she wanted to reform the uh, the Department of Education in order to, you guessed it, redirect more money towards education. Got it. So (sighs) funding doesn't sound very specific. Yeah. So it's super vague. And politicians are getting away with this all of the time. Yeah. So this is a nonpartisan don't let them get away with this standard package of overcrowding, funding, and maybe one extra issue to make it seem like they have some kind of nuance on the subject, which doesn't seem to be there. Right. We're oversimplifying a little bit on some of their policy pages, but we linked their caches in the show notes. People can go read them themselves. But any way you slice those pages, this is an extremely narrow set of policy discussions. And there doesn't seem to be movement by either political party to kind of expand the discussion or even deepen it with data. That still seems kind of harsh. Like, isn't that just what they're trying to get for the casual electorate? Sure, definitely. I don't I don't want to sound like I'm giving these candidates no credit whatsoever. So many of these candidates were school teachers or are currently school teachers or otherwise involved in education at some point. So their bona fides are not lacking. And obviously their personal stance on education issues is likely deeper than what's on their issues page. What is clear, though, is that they thought these stances were what voters wanted to see when they visited their campaign pages. So while transportation and housing enjoyed really specific policies with differentiating positions between the political parties, candidates' education policy discussions were well within this kind of narrow and ill-defined window that we've come to expect. All right, but surely some progressives have been making bold attempts to push that range of discussion. Okay, so let's detach a little bit from the local. I know that's heresy for us, <laughs> but let's move over to Queens in the Bronx. Let's talk about Ooh. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> I can already hear the veins bulging and the heart rates increasing among some of our more moderate listeners. Well, and they shouldn't. Uh, so AOC's issues page largely reads like a progressive dream, right? We got Medicare for all, We got the federal jobs guarantee, clean campaign finance, climate change action, criminal justice reform, ending private prisons, restoring Glass-Siegel. But her education proposals were actually relatively tame. 
The most radical was her call for a one-time elimination of all student debt. So that's pretty outside of the Overton window that we're discussing here. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's only recently hit the mainstream initially because of Elizabeth Warren. Now Bernie Sanders is expanding that policy a little bit. Yeah. And I believe they're the only two candidates currently on that. But otherwise, AOC calls for tuition-free public higher education and trade schools. And that's the end of her comments on education. Mm. Arguably the most progressive voice in Congress has a policy stance that if you delete one or two lines would be indistinguishable from Max Rose or for that matter, Dan Donovan. So I bring these things up because our education policy is only as nimble as our capacity for discussion, which is true for every form of public policy. Yeah. So when all we hear about is school funding, trade schools, and SHISAT, then we assume that talking about education involves talking about those things, when in fact there is so much more to explore when it actually comes to making education better. What exactly are some of the issues you think sit beyond the horizon? of acceptable policy debate. Sure, let's get very out of the box here, right? So we could talk about colleges refusing to consider SAT or ACT scores, for example. The disproportionate distribution of after-school sports and arts programs, banning charter schools, subsidizing books for homeschoolers. We could even talk about things that aren't even typically associated with schools, but that still affect education policy. Concentrated low-income housing, food deserts, congestion pricing. I could go on for another 30 minutes. And we probably will make that an entire episode, the things beyond the box. But to make these policies result in good schools, we need to expand the discussion on what a good school even is. Right. And how you find the data to reveal the importance of those new approaches. But most of the time, the data that would back up a lot of these things, why would you even want to look at school data? And the only reason I can think of is you're a parent and you're about to send your kid to school and you're trying to pick a good school district, like obviously only parents are the ones who should be even having this conversation because they're the ones who would be in front of that data, right? So that's true and it's not true. So it's true and that that's how it's working in practice currently, right? Yeah. You're a parent, you have what used to be the big publication, like a yellow pages of schools in front of you. Yeah. I need to make decisions. I, therefore, I need data and I'm going to start looking at this data. In reality, Every single one of us is affected by the schools in our communities. They are inseparable from everything that ends up happening with those (laughs) children. Those children graduate, they become part of the workforce, they become business owners, they go to college, they spend money on in-state, out-of-state tuition, they go to CUNY, they get internships, they work most internships for free, and then they- Their success is our success as a community. Right. So when we look at the adult literacy rate for- America, and we see that one in 10 people are illiterate, and a larger percentage of them are disproportionately illiterate by race and wealth and class, then we all need to start caring about education a lot more. This is the thing, though, is that whenever I think about the public narrative that is happening around education, it seems to be mainly parents who actively have kids in the system. And when I see other voices coming in, that aren't that, they're usually silenced. I mean, I'm going to be clear, I don't have a kid. And I also do not have a child, right? But I am a former teacher. I am getting my master's in education policy. I have worked in schools for over seven years. And I am still, like you described, excluded from these conversations. So let's talk about some of the ways that that happens, right? First off, people are seeing SHISAT and G&T discussions. The way journalists are even framing education policy debate, they're talking to parents exclusively. The speaker and education chancellor, Richard Carranza, who's doing a great job, held parent-only town halls in all of the boroughs. 
non-parents were not invited. The CECs, Community Education Councils, are exclusively for parents. Whatever kind of policymaking even exists at the citizen level in New York City, which is not a lot, and non-parents are not allowed to apply. Community Board 10 has an education subdivision they haven't met in over two years. That's not entirely true. They held those meetings about the new schools that were coming in, right? Okay, so that's different in that those are legally required by the school construction authority. Ah. Most of the members of the education subcommittee weren't there because the numbers update so much because they don't meet. This doesn't sound very good, especially just for me as someone who's on community board now. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. But the idea that policymakers, people who are mastering like you are in education policy would be excluded from the debate. There deserves to be a platform for intelligent people who care about stats and care about data and care about performance and more importantly, care about kids. You don't need to have a kid to care about kids. It's a radical concept. It's like, Jesus, like what is like everyone else a monster? Like, of course, I want kids to do really well. And I get it, though. Some parents, though, have a lot of experience with the school system as it is right now and are living it day in and day out. So we can't necessarily discount that experience. Not at all. But what's interesting is what will happen is if you no longer have a student in the system, you're also excluded. Let's say you've had two kids. They've gone through the New York City public school system. You've lost about half of your hair at this point (laughs) because you've just been pulling it out every time you have to deal and hear the word, the algorithm. (laughs) Once your kid graduates, guess what? You can't be in CEC anymore. Or guess what? You can't be on the education policy panel anymore. These are extremely narrow-minded exclusions. And I want to say they're excluding former teachers, of whom I know many. They're excluding people who care passionately. And I really do not believe that if you were to go up to a parent of a child in the third grade and say, hey, do you want the best people ever making decisions about your school? They're going to say yes. Mm. 10 out of 10 times. All right. So let's just say that's something that no one should accept, like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, and we'll give no more credence to that. Anyone can care about schools and have important and thoughtful things to say about what makes a school good. 100%. Except when they don't. (laughs) Except when they're not taking advantage of the plethora of data about schools that really is available. So let's make that the last half of this show. What can we do to find out how our schools are performing and have really nuanced questions so we aren't just saying more funding, more schools, more, more, more? Where's the first place that you would recommend that we all go to just get a a snapshot of how our schools are performing? Right. So let's talk about a framework, like quite literally. So the Department of Education, the New York City Department of Education, calls its assessment of methods for school quality the framework for great schools, aptly named. So that's the city metric. Schools are assessed by the feds, by state, by the city. Wait, why are so many different groups analyzing New York City public schools? Well, so each of them has their own pool of money to spend on schools, and they need metrics to determine how that funding is allocated or even if that funding is allocated. All right. So we have a city framework. Right. The framework for great schools. All right. So how transparent is it? Uh, Luckily for us New Yorkers, the DOE has had generations of public pressure to increase accountability, transparency, and self-evaluation. So as a result, school quality reports are released fairly frequently, along with other supporting material. So you can search for these school quality reports in the show notes. All right. So go to our webpage, www.radiofreebayridge.org. 
we're going to have links to all of this. Great plug. All right. So what kind of things does it measure? So it breaks down into the following categories. We got student achievement, supportive environment, rigorous instruction, collaborative teachers, strong family community ties, effective school leadership, and trust. It's a lot of things. There is a 15-second throwback button on your podcast app. I recommend <laughs> I recommend hitting it once or twice just so you got all those together. Yeah. These factors were chosen, quote, because research shows that schools strong in these six areas are far more likely to improve student learning, unquote. Okay, but I got to say, like, strong community ties, uh, trust, those are all really vague. They sound more like mottos than metrics. That's something you would needle point into a decorative housewarming gift. Right. So each of those categories is really a box that they're sorting actual metrics into. So real data comes from the NYC school survey. It's an annual survey taken by students, teachers, and parents, and with the quality review, which is a report, quote, by experienced educators who do two-day observations in schools, comparison of these reports over time, and then an explanatory guide to the research methodology and analysis used in these reports. I just sounded so wonky saying that. I felt awful. I'm so <laughs> sorry, listeners. I think I just put them asleep on the subway. <laughs> no, but this is the thing, though. Like, you just mentioned one of the two core things that feeds into these metrics is a two-day analysis of a school by a one singular experienced educator. Yeah, I don't want to speak for sure about the one educator. I, I can speak for sure about oh, the okay. one. <laughs> then I we went, can cut that. <laughs> no, no, no. I went through some of this because when you had actually listed this in the script a little earlier, I was like, what? And I looked it up and I went through like the guide for like the scheduling of mm, what a schedule sure. is like for one of these people going through a school and, and analyzing it. And it's a person when it's under a certain size school they do boost it to two people if it's a large school with the caveat that that second person is only there for the first day and leaves at noon. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that wild? Interviews with students, no matter the size of the school, it's maximum of 16 students. It's a six person small meeting and a 10 person larger meeting for 30 to 45 minutes max each. That's all the time they use to spend with students. And this is what they're using to metric out things like how much are kids being bullied? What is the climate of the school? And do they feel that they're safe in their school? Like, are they really getting that from 16 students? Right. So the answer is, of course, that they're not. And, you know, some things you can maybe trust a little more. So like with the bullying metric, at some point, if a student comes to an administrator and says they're being bullied, the administrator has to log that. Yeah. But that data isn't being fed into this report, which is yeah. what you're saying. Exactly. The city metrics I went onto the dashboard and it hits you with a ton of data in the face all at once. But if you spend five minutes literally just clicking random things, which is what I recommend in the 21st century in general, <laughs> you will actually, it is pretty intuitive. I will say that. We found some good data, for example, on Fort Hamilton. Right. I give you these kind of wonky terms and let's now tie it to a school that we're all familiar with here in Bay Ridge. For the sake of familiarity, I chose Fort Hamilton High School, which is, of course, one of the largest high schools in the district. And according to DOE, the jewel in the crown that is Bay Ridge. I thought that was pretty poetic. For yeah, me. that's an interesting quote. <laughs> so, Dan, I could talk about the metrics of Fort Hamilton for literally hours. The dashboard view, as you said, it hits you in the face with a lot of data. But for every traditional data point that education sociologists and policymakers love, there are data points for it. So we got four-year graduation rates. We got college readiness, 90% plus attendance rates with the ability to add in core test scores, 
time to 10 credits, overall attendance, post-secondary enrollment. The list just keeps going on. Yeah. It is a huge drop down. It also puts these numbers next to citywide and borough-wide results, as well as a comparison. That group, you can kind of select yourself. Exactly. And these are kind of like expected outcomes of schools adjusted for incoming school factors. So how did we do? Come on. What's the bottom line here? So bottom line, Fort Hamilton performs about exactly as well as the city expects it to, which you can take as a few different ways, right? So its impact (laughs) score, which is how it performs against expected outcomes, is almost exactly where it should be. All right. As is its performance score, which is how well it does not adjusting for student factors. All right. So in the provided cross-section of measures, Fort Hamilton is almost smack dab in the middle. Compared to the rest of the city, its graduation rate is just barely higher, as is its attendance rate. All right. So we're fine. Maybe Crown Jewel was a little too poetic, but we're fine. And unsurprisingly so. Kids of the socioeconomic background who attend Fort Hamilton High School are meeting their own expectations for their class and all of that. And the school isn't handicapping them, nor giving them a massive leg up. So... Are there any more detailed metrics in there that we could be plucking out? Sure, definitely. So, for example, Fort Hamilton outperforms on the College Readiness Index for those graduating in four years and on its Algebra 1 test scores. Okay, so you can go down right into all of those individual tests, which is kind of what you get smacked in the face with when you first show up. Like, 100%. Are kids really over-tested? Go onto this site and see all the tests that they're metricing, and that's just the tests that they're mandating on the city level, those aren't state, federal, necessarily. Right. So because, for example, the city might not actually have access to that data. There was that second thing, non-test stuff, like they interview teachers, they interview students. Okay. So you're talking about the external school quality review, which we talked about earlier. So one of the things that it found that Fort Hamilton does really well at, this is a long descriptor, but stay with me for it. Mm -hmm. It excels at establishing a culture for learning that communicates high expectations to all involved in the educational process and then achieving those expectations. Long story short, Fort Hamilton tells students we achieve here and the students say, heck yeah, we do. All right. So they interviewed both sides and both sides were in agreement. Uh, They also praised the school's curriculum, but noted that the assessment of that curriculum was in need. But if you ask me, all school curriculum is in need of dire assessment. (laughs) But that is a topic for a very different podcast. All right. So what about some of the more fuzzy stuff? Like how did people respond in general to a lot of these surveys? Yeah. So that's really interesting. So district 20 survey, like district 20 is our education district that we are in as Bay Ridge, but mm-hmm. we include other like Sunset Park, Dyker, Dyker Heights, Heights, Gravesend. Gravesend. Yes. Um, that survey data was really well responded to. So the response rate was 85% for teachers, 88 for students and 77% for parents. That's a Pretty good response rate. Exactly. Uh, Fort Hamilton, however, only saw a 25% response rate from local parents. Ooh. Accordingly, it received a really low score on strong family community ties. On a five-point scale, it scored a 2.27, which is 1.26 below the borough average and 1.13 below the city average. So the lowest subgroup of these school uh, of these survey questions was parental involvement in the school, which saw 46% of families saying they for example, had the opportunity to volunteer time and 69% of families saying they 
communicated with their child's teachers about their child's performance. All right. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean the parents aren't engaged with their kid, but could be multiple socioeconomic factors that keep them from engaging with the education system in that way. Right. So when they're talking about community bonds, there's a lot of things that makes a person not go to their parent-teacher conference, which is (laughs) what they're talking about here, right? They're talking about, did this person go to their parent-teacher conference? And as we... Bayridgeites know there are a lot of things that are keeping us busy here, and it's a neighborhood that might not necessarily be amenable to that as maybe a school district on the Upper East Side. But in the end, that kind of takes a huge chunk out of our city metric of whether our parents care about our kids' education. Right. So if somebody looking in Crown Heights and they're trying to look at school education data and they're like, why are 25% of Fort Hamilton high school parents responding to the survey? I thought everybody did this. Well, they might not necessarily know why that is, but the numbers don't describe more in more detail why that might be. I feel like we're starting to get a feeling that some of the data is there, but it's just not as good or reliable as it really should be. What about teachers have to collect a whole ton of data? And some of that even goes directly to the teacher unions and things like that. Right. Is that kind of stuff accessible? So third-party data, the closest source is the UFT, the United Federation of Teachers. They've partnered with DOE to do a lot of assessments, most famously the Measures of Student Learning, which is MOSUL, and the Measures of Teacher Performance, which is MOTOP, or however <laughs> you want to say it. Bayridgeites might be familiar with this relationship, as it was the topic of former state Senator Marty Golden's opposition to a bill that would make teacher evaluations and student standardized test scores separate. Okay, so this is the kind of stuff that they kind of use to measure teacher effectiveness. They tie grades to the teacher's grades, and then they use that to like judge how effective they are. Right. And this is a legacy of, for example, No Child Left Behind, which is infamous for doing this, Mm. um, but at a more local level, obviously. And I also just wanted to point out to our listeners, this is actually how a lot of data ends up happening at the school level. So United Federation of Teachers is naturally interested in data about teachers, What DOE will do is they will collect that data personally and then give it to UFT in a kind of here is this trying to keep the relationship. All right. So this data, it is public because it's given to the DOE? No. Okay. (laughs) Um, That's the interesting part. So anytime the DOE is taking data and giving it to someone else, that actually makes it more difficult for the public to see that data. And this is for a few reasons, right? So let's say, for example, somebody got a hold of the UFT data. One, that undermines potentially their ability to negotiate contracts. Yeah. But two, there could be an odd data point in there that doesn't make a lot of sense to the general public, but that looks really bad, right? So if they see like one school just tanked on teacher evaluations one year, then they could come out and be like, teacher evaluations, but they could be missing that, for example, Something went wrong with the data collection and the data is going to be available in four months and wasn't in time for the report, for example. Another example of that, the DOE can only hire so many policy researchers. They have a lot of things to do. They have 1.1 million students to take care of and a thousand different logistics that come from that. So what they'll also do, they'll give data to policy institutes like one at NYU. And they'll say, you have this data because you're working with this project. And the DOE will ask them a question. And in turn... The policy group at NYU gets to hold on to that data and not release it to anybody. They never release the actual data set for other people to check and see if it's correct. Right. And this is actually pretty common for the policy world to sanction off data like this and not release it to the public. All right. To kind of recap where we are so far, we have 
a lot of city data, which is generated by the city and released, and it has been for a long time. We have privatized things like the UFT or things that the DOE does have but doesn't make public and gives out to third-party entities. What about the state and what about the feds? So that's entirely different in that they're looking for different things, right? So everyone in education policy will famously tell you (laughs) education is not in the Constitution. And man, they love rubbing that in our faces every time they can. But the DOE does care about things or used to care about things like protecting students from being bullied or protecting Mm -hmm. students' access to sports, for example, Title IX legislation. And if a school isn't complying the federal government can cut off funding to that school. So anything that's tied to funding, we probably have a metric out there that theoretically is public that you'd be able to grab. We actually have to have that metric. Got it. Because I was able to find, for example, um, harassment data and bullying data and also, you know, sexual assault data, um, assault data in general, what resulted in a serious injury. You can get all of that for every school down to like the grade level. But it's in a totally separate spot, and it is on the New York State Department of Education website, and it's broken down in the most labyrinthine way in, like, massive Excel sheets, which makes it impossible to correlate. And if you want to use it to figure out what school your kid is going to as a parent, it is really not useful. Right. And again, very common. So the state probably has a series of laws intact, and because of the way that they chartered the initial layout of the government's relationship to their school system— The state has to have that data because if they don't, they can't enforce their laws. Got it. And the city doesn't need it or want it or really will make it available because it doesn't really affect their stuff. Well, because for the city, if the state wants to do something with that, it is the state's responsibility because the state has the data. (sighs) So there are all of these silos and everyone owns little bits of data. And it means that this is kind of making a good argument, in my opinion, for education policy experts who have as their job the ability to sift through the information because as a parent you feel like you have all of this data at your fingertips but really you don't have much and a lot of it is hidden and a lot of it is siloed and you don't even know what you're missing for example like how many kids are getting hot lunches what's the quality of those lunches like you mentioned affordable housing all of these externalities as an economist would talk about frankly we need to ask the question should parents be responsible for that data. I am trusting a lot of scientists who have done a lot of work who are telling me that climate change is real. Mm -hmm. Why then can we not allow parents to parent children, which holy crap is hard enough, and also tell them, hey, our school system is the most segregated school system in the country. These things fix it. You can help us, but we also need you to trust us. And it seems like trust is really hard to come by in the education world. Because we are dealing with people's children, which is an understandable high bar to pass. And the fact that we've been trying for so long, multiple generations into just finding a fix and not all of the fixes have worked. We don't talk about no child left behind anymore, but the metrics that were there to determine its feasibility are still a thorn in the side of teachers and unions and parents. Yes, absolutely. And these things follow us. The Obama administration was unable to entirely get rid of the legacy of No Child Left Behind. The base idea of you perform well, you get money, 
in our minds, we say, of course, that leaves people behind. And of course, that's not going to work. <laughs> but instead, what happened was people saw a Republican ideology during a Republican presidency. And they said, okay, sure. That makes right? sense. You're because that was the discussion. The discussion was never about metrics. It was never about data. It was never about what works, what doesn't work. It was never about what teachers were saying, which teachers were talking about No Child Left Behind and in some doomsday scenarios. But it was about an ideology because that was the limit of the discussion. And we can't start with that, is that we have to start with, think about the data that matters for you. What things do you think make a good school? Step two then is to say, okay, I think that instead of four-year graduation rate, I think high school should care about six-year graduation rate. Because what does that mean, right? Six-year graduation rate is a metric we always collect. We've been collecting it for a while. And it's because sometimes grandma dies or gets sick. And sometimes a student is able to work and their mom is already working two and jobs. And so right out of college, they're not necessarily... Even high school. Yeah. Oh, God, that's a high school... Um, that's a high school metric. It's not a high school metric for everyone because sometimes they cut you off at 18. But if a student needs to take a year off, Let's maybe not count them as a policy failure. Let's maybe count them as somebody who graduated from high school, even though they had to work a job and take a year off. And for our listeners' sake, it doesn't even need to be 100% wonky. You can look at your family and say, we have a proud tradition in this family of being welders. And we've just lived in New York City. We've welded our whole lives. And man, we just got to keep it going because secret listeners, welding is going nowhere. <laughs> you can continue to have that job and get a lot of money. Welder's going to weld. Welder's going to weld and they're going to get paid really well for it. <laughs> so they can say college enrollment rates for Fort Hamilton High School do not matter to me. Mm. What matters to me is that my son or daughter comes out of high school and is able to do their taxes or is able to find a job or an apprenticeship in the first six months. Yeah. That's a metric that we have. And that's something we could be demanding that we not only know, but that our politicians boost and make important in the education policy world. So let's just, as a final cap on this episode, let me walk through what that might look like, right? Let's say we have a parent. They say, my son isn't going to college. He doesn't want to go. I don't have the money for him to go. We've decided as a family and he's decided as an individual, no college for me. The thing that I'm going to care about most, let's say the son is in middle school here, right? The thing that I care about as a parent is that my son can get an internship or an apprenticeship before they graduate high school. Huh. So let's go and I'm looking and I'm going to pick my high school and I'm looking at the data and I'm looking at six month job attainment rate Okay. or I'm looking at internship attainment rates if the school happens to have a program for that. And they say, I really want to stay in Bay Ridge. I went to Fort Hamilton. I want my son to go there, but they don't have that metric or they don't have a program for internships. Then you go and you're like, hey, Justin Brannon, you get on Facebook, <laughs> you're tagging Justin Brannon, and you're like, you know what? Fort Hamilton should really start looking at how many of their students are getting internships or how many of their students are getting apprenticeships. And suddenly, Justin, who used to work at the DOE, says, here's a parent who knows it. Here's a parent <laughs> who's like, who did their work. And they're talking about a specific education thing that Justin can send an email about that day. Yeah. And can get on the, on the, you know. On the horn or whatever, yeah, say, on, can, on the red phone that he has on yeah. his desk. <laughs> he can get on the burn, the blower, right? <laughs> he, uh, as they used to say back in the day, he gets on the blower, 
with his red phone that goes directly to the president of Fort Hamilton or the <laughs> principal of Fort Hamilton. And he can say, let's get together. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this policy. And suddenly we have done education policy and it wasn't even that hard. And we're creating data that anyone else can then use. Rest assured, if it's important to you, it's probably important to a bunch of other people. Look, only 30% of students in this country still graduate college. Like, in case you haven't noticed with Radio Free Bay Ridge, we kind of do foundational episodes, and then we go even further into the weeds. But data literacy is one of the things we usually start out with when we realize that a subject is going to be continual and constant and always in your ear is that we want to get some of the basic stuff out of the way. And this hopefully wasn't too wonky. And to tease our next episode a little bit in the education sphere is we're going to look at the people who are actively against all of it. Yeah. They mm. look at schools and they say, not for me. I literally have heard the term that we have oversaturated the area with schools. Yes. And one of the things we'll talk about in that episode is why our narrow policy discussion has led to this kind of vitriol for schools in our neighborhood. Yeah, because some of the things that they are basing that vitriol on are just the narrow funding and crowding and none of the other stuff. And they're not even understanding how the schools are serving people of different socioeconomic classes and backgrounds. Absolutely. Thank you, listeners, for coming along with us on this education wonky data journey. <laughs> we were talking about doing this episode for months. I'm so glad we finally did it. Please interact with me on Twitter when I tweet education things and get no likes. <laughs> I definitely want to start having this conversation in the Yeah, er, you are here and you are literally one of our local resources for education wonky policy stuff and you're not tied to any group. You're not. I'm not tied to Big Ed, man. <laughs> Big Ed. This podcast is all local. It's run by us. It's run by people like you. Uh, literally, like people like you, Eric. <laughs> I'm looking directly in your direction. You just, I mean, you started this because you wanted to talk about education in your neighborhood and you just reached out to us. If any parents want to reach out to me, talk to me about their schools, please. I'd love to hear it. I am always, always, always ready to talk about schools. Yeah, and we will do the analysis right now. I'm getting some numbers, hopefully that can be put on the website at some point, that is just the racial breakdown of every single local Bay Ridge school since um, 1976, which is all available, but is incredibly hard to find and incredibly hard to look at visually over time. So if you have any questions, if you have anything that you want to hear about, Education, we know, is one of those subjects that everybody cares about, so we are treating it very seriously. Education in this country is the one thing we all do together. It's the last thing we all do together as people existing in this country. We all do it together. It matters a lot to all of us. Let's keep the conversation going. So everyone, remember, you can always follow us on Twitter at, at RadioFreeBR. You can visit our show notes at RadioFreeBayRidge.org. You can also interact with us on Facebook. We have Instagram. You can email us at contact at RadioFreeBayRidge.org. And seriously, comment on absolutely anything and everything. So everyone, thank you so much. And as always, stay free, Bay Ridge. 